We are in Matthew chapter 6 this morning, Matthew chapter 6, praying on Father's Day. Jesus, he had a very special relationship with his fathers, with, with his father. And he wanted his disciples to enjoy that same kind of relationship with God. So, he instructs his disciples, Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We studied these verses last week. What is at the essence of what Jesus is saying? What he's saying to his disciples is that when they pray, the Father is their audience not others around them. Prayer is always a response to the Father's invitation to an intimate conversation. That's what prayer is. It's a response to the Father's invitation to an intimate conversation. Jesus wants his disciples to know that they can actually get on the Father's lap, as it were. Hang on to his neck, as Tim Keller writes. To pray, they are to pray with an awareness of who their father is, that their father is present and wants to hear them. I believe every Christian father prays that God will reveal himself to his children in this way. If you're a father, you probably have prayed that prayer. I remember getting ready for a flight in. 2004. It was January of 2004, and my oldest daughter and I, we were off to Africa. I'd been invited to a gathering in Nairobi, and my daughter and I, we had always dreamed of doing a trip together around her 15th birthday, which is a very special day, uh, a birthday in Brazil. So I was invited to the gathering. I was given a ticket. I didn't have money for her ticket, but she, being smart, she called her grandfather. It's amazing how our kids learn this. We don't have to teach them. So she called her grandfather. He paid for a ticket. And there we were on January 10th, ready to fly to Africa. Got to the check-in, South African Airways in Sao Paulo. Uh, They asked for our passports, so I presented our Canadian passports. And they looked at Ashley's passport, my daughter's passport, and they said, hmm, born in Brazil, where's your Brazilian passport? So I pulled out her Brazilian passport. They looked at it expired. She cannot travel. You, we don't care about. Go ahead. But your daughter is Brazilian, and as a Brazilian, she cannot travel without a valid passport. So I'm thinking, okay, what do I do? I've really messed this up. Ashley's already crying. Okay, federal police above us. So I leave check-in, I run upstairs to the Brazilian Federal Police, and I I explain our case, and I say, we have to fly today, we have commitments in Africa. And they look at me and say, Ray, this is not going to happen, she will not fly. So we gather our things, uh, talk to the Federal Police about renewing her passport, it can't be done that day, we go to a passport office the following day, renew her passport quickly, think about 
flying, marking our flight for another day. We call South African Airways and they say, hey, all flights to Johannesburg, Johannesburg are booked right through the month of January. You will not fly until February. And it's the only airline, at least at that time, it was the only airline flying from Sao Paulo to Johannesburg. So we pray and we just decide that we will mark the day when we will fly and then see what happens. So on the day that we have marked to fly, I believe it was January the the 14th, we go to the airport and, uh, no, sorry, before going to the airport, I called South African Airways and I said, just put our names on the waiting list. And the person that answered the phone said, there's no point. There's such a long waiting list. There's no point in me putting your names on the list. And I said, just put the names on the list, please. So she says, okay. And she says, it's not going to help. Names are on the list. We go to the airport four hours early thinking that, okay, if we get there early, maybe it'll help us. Get there Get to the airport four hours early. There's already a long lineup. Before we even get in line, there's a person from South African Airways asking for tickets, which we don't have. And so she says, okay, where's your tickets? Um, We're on the waiting list. She says, no point in standing here. Go home. And I remembered, okay, there's actually a South African Airways office behind the check-in counter. So I run around the crowd and go into the office, and there's a receptionist waiting And she says, okay, how can I help you? And I said, well, we really would like to fly today, uh, but we don't have tickets. Could you just see whether we're on the passenger list? She says, there's no point. If you're on the waiting list, there's a long waiting list. I said, just open your computer. (laughs) So she reluctantly opens her computer, and she, you know, opens the document. She looks at the list. Ah, you're on the list. I can't believe it. You're confirmed. And we said, yeah. We prayed. She kind of... (laughs) So, I'm not so spiritual. I go back to the long lineup and South African Airways personnel that have rejected me. I show my tickets and go through check-in. We get to the gate. We're sitting there waiting for our flight. And I'm still a bit stunned. And I say to Ashley, wasn't that amazing? We're actually on this flight. We're off to Africa. And she says, Dad, I knew we would get on. I said, how did you know we'd get on? She said, well, last night I was reading my Bible. I was in the book of Isaiah. And I landed on Isaiah chapter 64, and God just spoke to me. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And she said, when I read that, God spoke to me, and I just knew that God was going to act on our behalf. Now, I'm not the greatest father. I don't even remember to renew my daughter's passports. But thankfully, they have a father in heaven who is the ideal father who hears their prayers, who speaks to them, and acts on their behalf. Jesus wants his disciples to know this. And so he continues to instruct them. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. 
For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Interesting words. You know, prayer, prayer is not unique to the Christian faith. There are people around the world today praying. People from different cultures, different places, different religions. And in different ways, they're throwing their requests up to the spiritual realm. They may believe in a God or in gods or spirits or saints. In some way, they're throwing their requests up. There's really only two foundations for prayer. Jesus refers to one of them here when he talks about heaping up empty phrases. It could be read babbling. There are people that think that they have to somehow get the attention of God or the gods. And so they make a sacrifice. They give an offering. And then as they do that, they throw up their prayer with the hope that somehow God is going to wake up and listen. Some people will hit, you know, a big gong, play an instrument, pray really loudly some people will think that they, they need to write, use the right magical formula. There's a, a prayer that they've learned, and if they just pray that prayer, maybe, just maybe, the gods will listen. People are doing that all over the world today. They heap up empty phrases. The problem is not repetition per se, because even in Scripture we have prayers where there is repetition. For example, Psalm 136, there's a phrase repeated over and over again, for his steadfast love endures forever. Jesus, when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, Gethsemane, the, the scriptures say that he repeated his prayer. So the problem is not repetition per se. It is what is in our hearts. If prayer is this mindless, mechanical exercise, if we think that we're just reciting words in order to somehow twist God's arm, manipulate his will, then prayer has become negotiation. Then we're treating God as if we're in a business relationship. And our prayers are often driven by anxiety, by worry, by fear. Even what's called Christian prayer can degenerate into this kind of prayer. Jesus taught his disciples what has become known as the Lord's Prayer, our Father. And some people will just recite this prayer over and over again as penance, or as some way to get God's attention. Prayer to the Father is never an impersonal, mechanical, boring exercise. If prayer is mechanical and boring for us, we have not understood what Jesus teaches his disciples here. What's the foundation for prayer for disciples of Jesus? Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then you have a good father who is present. He's not ignorant. You don't need to instruct him. You don't need to let him know what's happening in your life. He's not aloof or distant. You don't have to persuade him to pay attention. The Father, he follows your life attentively. He knows you by name. That's what Jesus teaches his disciples in John chapter 10. He knows you by name. He knows your journey. 
And because of who he is, he will respond to your prayers. You see, you are family. You are son. You are a daughter. We find a parallel passage in Luke chapter 11. There in Luke chapter 11, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him to teach them to pray. And again, Jesus teaches them what we have come to know as the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus goes on to say that, hey, your Father in heaven, he actually delights in responding to your requests. He wants to give you even the best gift, the Holy Spirit. So ask. Now, if God already knows what we need, how should we pray? Well, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then like this, Jesus says. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours... Wait, it stops there in your Bible. There is a doxology which many of us pray. It's found in some ancient manuscripts, but not the best. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Maybe you learned the Lord's Prayer in that way. And that doxology, it is good to pray it. It is right to pray it. You find similar words in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, Revelation chapter 4, Revelation 5, 19. And so it is good and right to pray that doxology. But what we should notice in the Lord's Prayer is that Jesus is providing a framework for our prayers, how we should pray. And we begin with an, an invocation, with an address, our Father. And that's followed by requests. And it's interesting that the first three requests are connected to God's will, God's agenda on earth. And then following that, we find three Requests for our personal needs. We pray for our personal needs in light of who God is and what his will is. It changes the way we pray. So, verse 9, our Father. You know, Jesus could have started with our sovereign ruler, our creator, the almighty. And in Jewish circles, this was very common. That was the way that they prayed. They would refer to God as sovereign, being transcendent, the Almighty. But Jesus chooses our Father. That's his favorite name for God in the Gospels. Our Father. Our Father, it does convey authority, but also it's personal. It's intimate. It communicates that God is loving, that he's present. The word that Jesus would have used would have been Abba. Abba is Aramaic for father. Jewish children used the word Abba for their earthly fathers, whether they were young or old. And so Jesus, when in praying to the father, would have prayed Abba. And it's interesting that Jesus' disciples are instructed to pray this way. You see that in the book of Galatians, the book of Romans. Jesus, he's introducing a whole new way of relating to God. Jesus is intimate with the Father, and he wants his disciples to experience the same thing, a relationship that is alive, that's full, that's dynamic. Never boring, never mechanical, never impersonal. His disciple John, he got it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 
see what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God? And so we are. And so we are. What a beautiful picture Jesus paints for us. The Father is personal. He is loving. He is present, intimate. But he is also reigning over all things. He is sovereign. He's not only a good God, he's a great God. He not only wants to help us, he can. In the truth of who we are praying to, it changes everything. You see, if God is, if God is disinterested, when I come to God in prayer and I see him as being in, disinterested, he's kind of aloof, way out there, distant, not really present, then I will come to him in a certain way trying to get his attention. I found this in my own life. I've seen it in others where we'll just raise the volume of our prayer, pray long prayers with the intent of somehow getting God to pay attention. As if that were needed. Now, if we understand that God is sovereign and present, that he is powerful, yes, but also loving, that he is transcendent, yes, but also speaking, then we will pray the way Jesus did. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're praying, may your name be kept holy. May your name be revered. May you be given the highest honor on earth as it is in heaven. And scripture, of course, opens a window into what angels sing, pray before the Father. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So when we pray, Father, may your name be kept holy. We're praying that we as disciples will come with humility, that we will come with devotion, that we who bear the name of the Father here on earth, that we will live in holiness, that we will give him the highest honor. And how would God's name be hallowed in our lives? Well, hallowed be your name. It's connected to your kingdom come, your will be done. When we pray for God's kingdom to come, what are we praying for? Well, we're praying for God's kingdom to come in its fullness, and that will only happen when Christ's reign is established on earth at his second coming. But simultaneously, we're also praying that God's kingdom be extended across the earth, that more and more people surrender to Jesus and recognize who their father is, discover who he is, and surrender their lives completely to him. You see, the kingdom of God is present to the extent that Jesus is reigning in my life and your life. To the extent that Jesus is reigning in our homes, in our families, in our churches, to the extent that Jesus is reigning in our city, our country, our continent, to the extent that Jesus is reigning in a situation or a moment in history, and so we're praying for the kingdom of God to come. Sometimes we expect God to begin at Municipal Hall when we pray this prayer, or at the Provincial Legislature, or the House of Commons, but God most often begins in the life of one who is praying for the kingdom of God to come. And so the person that's praying that prayer says, God, may your kingdom come in my life. I surrender it all to you. And when we pray that way, then our hearts are reoriented. 
And suddenly our priorities start to change, our values start to change, our relationships are changing, or at least the way we view them. We begin to pray, Father, your kingdom come in my life, in my home, in my nation. May your eternal kingdom, your unshakable kingdom, may it come and shake the kingdoms of this earth. That happens in Acts chapter 4. Revelation chapter 8 talks about that. A team from Canada went to a, a small village, a small city in North India. It was in the foothills, or is in the foothills of the Himalayas. A team from Canada went there and they encountered a church, a vibrant church. In this church, there were people sitting on the floor, there were people lining the walls, there were people in the courtyard outside the church building. The worship was alive when the Word of God was opened. There was just this sense of reverence. And the Canadian team was just so impressed with what they saw. And then they talked to the pastor couple, and the pastor couple said, it has not always been so. We came here 20 years ago. We came as medical doctors. That was our way of entry. We came to serve this city, but we also came with the intention of planting a church. And for 20 years, we shared the gospel. Some people showed some interest in Jesus, but most people just returned to their Hindu and Buddhist practices. And after 20 years, we were ready to pack it all up and go home. Until... A team, a mission team, came to our city with the intention of praying for the kingdom of God to come in our city. They rented a home on the hillside here outside of town. For 12 months, that was all they did. They did eat, yes. They did sleep. They did meet some people in the marketplace. They did play with some children. They played soccer. But what they gave themselves to was prayer. They just prayed for the kingdom of God to come in our city. And after 12 months, they packed up their belongings and went home. And after they left, the spiritual floodgates opened. And those that had resisted the gospel, those that had shown absolutely no interest in Jesus, were all of a sudden willing to hear the gospel message, willing to surrender their lives to Jesus. Dozens of people, scores of people, hundreds of people received Jesus as Savior and Lord, and got baptized. There was a spiritual waking. The kingdom of God came to our city. And we attribute that to the prayer of God's people on the hillside. So when I hear a story like that, I ask the Father, could that happen in Burnaby? Could that happen in New Westminster? Could it happen in Vancouver? Could the kingdom come at BCIT, at SFU, at Douglas, at Langare? Could it happen at Mosscrop? Could it happen in our church? Could it happen in the churches of Vancouver? Could it happen in your life, in my life, in your home, in my home? Would it be possible for the kingdom to come in that way should we pray? You see, our Father, He desires that His kingdom come. That's His will. 
And when we pray, your will be done, we're praying that the will of the Father be done, which is always good and acceptable and perfect. It is the absolutely best thing that could ever happen to anyone on earth. We get so focused on our little name, our little empire, our little will. And we can actually spend a lot of time in prayer about our little name, our little empire, and our little will. As if we were at the center of the universe. But when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are reoriented. And suddenly we begin to understand who the Father is. We begin to pray for what's on His agenda. That His name be glorified across the earth. That His kingdom come. That His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And every day becomes the Father's day. Praying to the Father is first and foremost for God's loving agenda to be done. For His loving agenda to be done. And when we're aware of God's sovereignty, His power, His transcendence, and His love and presence, we pray in a whole new way in relation to our personal needs. Verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. The sense is, the bread that we need, even today, day by day. You know, many first century laborers, they lived a very, very fragile, precarious existence. They literally lived day to day. They were paid at the end of a day's work. And so you can imagine what illness might mean for a father or a family should the father, the worker of the family, fall ill. Could mean tragedy. Bread. Bread refers to all that we need to live. Food, health, work, a place to sleep. The Father knows what we need. We have tangible needs every day. The Father is not surprised. And notice it's a community prayer. Give us. Not just, Father, you know, provide for my needs. Provide for our needs. God's people. And then, well, let me just quote Edward Schweitzer. He said it really well. Grant that we may lie down to sleep, not with a sense of abundance or surety against hard times, but simply without despair, knowing that the coming day has been provided for. Give us this day our daily bread. When we pray that prayer, we just recognize our ultimate dependence on the Father. And then Jesus turns to our relational needs. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The word forgive here, it means literally cancel, let go. So we pray, Father, as, as we have forgiven, cancel the debts of those who owe us, cancel our debts. Now imagine if the Father were to forgive the way that we sometimes forgive, or the way that we struggle with forgiveness. Just give me some time to think about it. I I just need a bit of time. Uh, This time you actually went too far. I'm not sure. I actually have a reason to be offended. And I'm just going to harbor my grievance 
for a while. Imagine if the father were like us. In, in the Greek and Roman worlds, there was a record of debt that was kept, a, literally a written note of indebtedness. And this is the, 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 the idea that is behind Colossians 2 that we will re- read in a minute. Because of our, our sin, our falling short, our missing the mark, our self-worship, we actually had a record of debt before the Father. But God mercifully took our record of debt and nailed it to the cross when Jesus died on our behalf. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we who are disciples of Jesus, when we recognized what the Father had done for us, Through Jesus, when we understood that the Father's Son, Jesus, had died for us, we placed our trust in His payment for our sin. We received Jesus as our Savior. And we were justified before the Father, and we were reconciled with the Father. We came alive by the Holy Spirit, we became sons and daughters. And anyone who understands that prays our Father and forgives. John Stott writes, God forgives only the penitent, the repentant. And one of the chief evidences of true penitence is a forgiving spirit. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. And we so often do that. Peter, disciple of Jesus, one day he's struggling with this very thing. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus... If my brother has sinned against me, how many times do I forgive him? Seven? And he thinks he's being generous. And Jesus tells him and the other disciples this story. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. One of his servants owes him 10,000 talents. Translated into our language, 200,000 years of labor. That's the debt. So obviously, it's impossible for that servant to pay that debt. The king says, okay, you will be sold into slavery, your whole family will be sold into slavery, and all of your belongings will be sold, and you'll be put into prison until the debt is paid. Obviously, an impossible situation. The debt will never be paid. So the servant, he just gets on his knees and pleads with the king, have patience with me, have mercy on me. And the king 
feels compassion toward him and cancels his debt, sets him free. That same forgiven servant, then he meets another servant. Remember, his 200,000 years of labor have just been forgiven. The debt has been canceled. He meets a fellow servant who owes him 100 days of work. That's significant, 100 days of work, but nothing in comparison to 200,000 years. He grabs his fellow servant by the neck and chokes him and says, pay what you owe. And his fellow servant responds exactly the way that he had responded to the king. Have patience with me. Have mercy on me. And this forgiven servant puts his fellow servant in prison until he pays the last penny. The king discovers what has happened. It's reported to him. So he summons the forgiven servant and says to him, You wicked servant! How could you not forgive your fellow servant who owed you 100 days of work when I forgave you 200,000 years of labor? And it seems absurd, right? Until we recognize that so often that's us. We have a hard time forgiving people that have offended us. And we forget that the Father has forgiven us canceled our debt over 200,000 years of labor. Right after teaching the Lord's Prayer, just so the disciples will get it, Jesus says this in chapter 6, verse 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Why does Jesus spend so much time on forgiveness? Well, he does because he knows that this is where we mess up. First of all, prayer is about relationship with the Father. And if we don't forgive, we demonstrate that we actually don't know the Father. Secondly, Forgiveness, it's indispensable to the health of our souls. When we don't forgive, we become bitter, cold, hard. Third, we forgive because we actually have been enabled by God to forgive. If we're children of the Father, followers of Jesus, then the Holy Spirit has been sent to live within us. We have what we need to forgive. We just need to choose to do it. We have the resources. And the fourth reason is found in the last request of the Lord's Prayer, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see, the Father knows that we are going to face trials and temptations in this life, that we will go through times of testing. Testing in the area of provision, testing in our relationships, testing when we feel vulnerable and need protection. The good news is that we have a good, good father who is present and is able to deliver us, wants to deliver us. Our father cares deeply about our needs for provision, healing, and protection. He never tempts us directly, but he does allow us to go through times of testing in order to strengthen us in our faith, in order for us to be refined, transformed. Now, when we fail to cancel the debts of others, 
we actually give a secure foothold to Satan in our lives. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about this. And our prayers are rendered ineffective. We often forget this. James chapter 5 is an example, 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Did you notice the intimate connection between confession of sin, prayer, and healing? This also applies to husband-wife relationships. For example, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks a lot about hypocrisy. And I find that sometimes when I'm before the Father, I am such a hypocrite. Um, Sometimes I have a wonderful wife, but sometimes I don't understand why she says what she says, why she does what she does. And I find myself before the Father kind of like this. Father, I'm not sure why you gave me such a difficult wife. And I'm struggling to forgive her. And the father says, your wife is nearly, not nearly as difficult as the husband I gave her. (laughs) But it's interesting how in a relationship like a marriage, a family relationship, a relationship with close friends, fellow church members, how we can get stuck And we think that it's such a big deal to forgive the person next to us, almost as if they don't deserve it. That we're being really amazing, magnanimous, should we forgive, cancel the debt of someone. And we completely forget that the Father has forgiven us, canceled the debt of 200,000 years of labor. In other words, a debt we could never pay. And so Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil because if we were to just rest in our own understanding, we wouldn't be aware of the danger of evil around us, our own evil inclinations, the influence of evil in our society that encourages us to be self-centered and to get what we want out of life. That would not remind us that there actually is an evil one, Satan himself, who wants to destroy our relationships and devour our souls. And so Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, different religions, they will teach you that certain days belong to certain gods or certain spirits or certain saints. Each saint has a special day. Gods have special days. And on those days, you pray special prayers, magical prayers, that will get you what you want. For example, maybe you want a financial blessing. Well, there's a saint or a god that takes care of that. Maybe you want protection in a certain area. And so there's a saint or a god that will protect you in that way. And there's this, actually 
a set prayer to get that. Well, it's all of human fabrication. It is lies. And the good news, if, if you've come to know Jesus, the good news is that every day is the Father's day. The Father is sovereign over all things. He is almighty. All of history is in his hands. He is present. He is loving. And he is present to act on our behalf. And so as children of the Father, we kneel before him and say, our Father in heaven. Let's bow our heads for prayer. And we'll just take a moment for, for silent prayer. So, Father, show us where we don't understand who you are. Father, help us to understand your agenda for our lives, your glory, your kingdom, your will being done. Father, may we understand that you're our provider that you are present to provide all our needs. Father, show us where we need to forgive. Father, I pray for those here that may not know you as Father. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I just invite you to pray this prayer with me. Father, I need you in my life. Forgive me for not acknowledging you. Forgive me for living as if you don't exist. Forgive me for my independence for my selfishness thank you for sending Jesus your son to die for me to pay the price that I could never pay Jesus I invite you to be my savior and lord reign in my life send your spirit to live in me to empower me to follow you father may I live for your glory from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, come forward for conversation. Go to the Welcome Center. Before we go, I would love it if we would just pray the Lord's Prayer together. You may have memorized it in the King James Version or English Standard Version or in another language, whatever comes natural to you. Let's pray it together. Let's stand and pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful, blessed Father's Day.